Hello, and welcome to Gresham College. My name is Richard Harvey. I am the uh, Worshipful Company of IT Professor of IT here at Gresham College, uh, the WCIT sponsor uh, these lectures, and they do so because one of their missions, amongst many, is to use um, IT skills to make a difference, and they would specifically wish to improve knowledge and the understanding of IT and its capabilities to the wider public. I'm also a professor of computer science at the School of Computing Sciences. Uh, I am not a medic, and uh, in this lecture that will become evident. I'm interested in the way health services around the world are using technology in this lecture. So why is IT thought to be helpful in the propagation of better health? Well, one way of looking at this, and this is a, a diagram I produced, is to have a look at the cost of health services around the world versus their life expectancy. You might regard life expectancy as a sort of primitive measure of effectiveness of a health service. And so on the bottom of this uh, graph, uh, you, I've plotted cost on a logarithmic scale, please note. And on the um, y-axis, I've plotted life expectancy. Now, I'm deliberately not expecting you to work out which one of these countries uh, is your own country when watching this, but there's a couple of things. And I've plotted uh, multiple years here, the um, something like 2005 to 2015, I think. So the first thing to say is most countries, which each one of these lines has a positive gradient. As far as I can tell, it's between about half a year per year and one year per year. So every year the health service is, your health service is in existence, it's extending life expectancy by at least half a year. There are some outliers. There are some outliers on the bottom right of the graph uh, where you can see the, the lines dip and come back up again. That's almost all warfare. Um, and uh, this lecture is given in the middle of the uh, coronavirus situation. So I'm sure we're going to see um, that sort of effect in all of our healthcare services. And then there's another outlier over on the right. Uh, there's this little line over on the right, which seems to be incredibly expensive compared, remember this is a log scale, compared to any other health service in the world, and not particularly good. It doesn't have particularly good healthcare outcomes. And uh, if you want a clue as to what that... Um, that healthcare system is, you can see it on this graph here. It's the United States of America, which uh, for various historic reasons has a incredibly expensive healthcare uh, service. And when I say it's not very good, because what I'm measuring here is the overall life expectancy of the population as a whole. Um, if your view is that the health service doesn't have to work for everyone, and it's really only designed for rich people and people who can afford the insurance, then and under those terms, the US health service is very good indeed. And there's a number of countries that have that property. It's essentially a twin track system. Uh, if you are in a good area or if you are wealthy enough, then the service is amazing. And if you're in a rural area or you're impoverished, then it is terrible. Um, so Leaving aside the relative merits of these various systems, because I, I should say 
As soon as you start talking about health services, particularly in the United Kingdom, the, the Gresham College is based in the UK and I'm a, a British citizen, um, you get involved in health service wars uh, where, on the one side, if you have vaguely socialist tendencies, the NHS, the National Health Service of, of uh, the United Kingdom, cannot be criticised under any circumstances. Um, and on the other side... Uh, if you are have right-wing tendencies and you point out that it's a bit inefficient, isn't it, and uh, maybe it could do things better, you are roundly criticised. Well, it's inevitable in a lecture like this that I will end up criticising um, health services. I'm sorry about that, but it has to be said. Um, and it's particularly unfortunate timing because we're right in the middle of the coronavirus uh, crisis and in times like that we're all emotional about our health services. And uh, this lecture goes out on a Thursday evening when in the United Kingdom we all go out at 8pm and clap vigorously for our members of our National Health Service and other professions who are looking after us. Um, so I'd rather wish I wasn't being critical, but um, what can I tell you? Gresham professors have a duty to the truth, I suppose, so, um, so it's got to be done. Right. Well, what's the motivation for all of this? Um, Cost is one, which we were talking about. Uh, what's also interesting is the World Health Organization, which we've heard so much about from in the, in the coronavirus uh, crisis, is is very strongly in favour of uh, digitisation of the uh, health service. And I'll look at uh, why that is later on. But they're not coming, in, I think, particularly from cost control um, angle. They're coming at it from the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals angle, in which they point out you can't really meet the Sustainable Development Goals unless you are you at least have digitised some of your health service. And what's so interesting about these uh, goals, the, the um, WHO digitisation aims, is not what's in them, but what isn't in them. And I want to explain in this lecture something about that. Uh, as with all of these lectures in the Digital uh, State series at, at Gresham College, I was actually expecting to give a lecture about lots of cool stuff. You know, I'm a technologist, I love cool stuff, and I was really, yes, I was really expecting to talk about, you know, robot surgeons and all that sort of stuff. However, when I looked into it, I realised that the issue wasn't really the cool stuff at all. The issue was the health service itself, and I'm not really talking about any particular health service here, they all suffer from this, this problem. So what I'm actually going to do in this lecture is I'm going to pick apart health services and ex try and explain why certain aspects of health services are very underdeveloped, and some perhaps are adequately developed, and I want to point out that leaving those parts of the health service undeveloped are, is, is a critical mistake. Uh, and may be, may be very expensive for societies. So the purpose of this lecture is to point uh, quite firmly at certain aspects of healthcare and show why they would benefit from digitisation, but why it has been a problem up till now. So uh, to help with that, I've produced this little uh, pyramid diagram here. And... Um, the, 
I don't know if you're familiar with the healthcare uh, taxonomy of healthcare in healthcare systems, but the basic idea is that um, ignore the line called self at the top. Uh, that's something I've added. That you have a primary, secondary, tertiary, and quaternary uh, system in primary in healthcare. The primary are uh, general practitioners, general practitioners or physicians. Their first point of contact uh, with the public, and then if you get referred to a specialist usually in a hospital, that's what we would call secondary care. And in tertiary care is specialisms within the hospitals that require additional support, things like intensive care and complex, more complicated uh, operations and so on. And then quaternary, that's the sort of experimental, um, you know, um, and highly specialised care. Now, uh, it's difficult to get figures for these across uh, the world, so I've just picked a country, um, and I've picked NHS England. Uh, for those of you who are not British, I should point out that uh, Britain's health service is, is usually referred to as the NHS, the National Health Service. It isn't a national health service. There are four national health services, uh, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and England. England's the biggest. And uh, they share some things, but they, they they bill each other, for example, very inefficiently for, for people across the border. No one knows why we have four health services. There doesn't seem to be any uh, evidence that people in Scotland um, get different types of heart attacks from people in England. Uh, but it's a historical, cultural thing, and each person uh, believes that their own health service is better than the other. And uh, so it goes. So I'm just talking about England here just to get some figures. Uh, right, roughly 63 million population in England. Uh, those people make a staggering 300 million visits per annum to primary health care providers. It's amazing, isn't it? So if you're one of those people watching this who barely goes to the GP, well, thank you very much, but no one else bothers. Um, so uh, lots of people are in and out of um, primary care. With all sorts of things, although not rec not recently, because we were all banned from visiting the uh, the GP. We have to do it uh, another way. And then, roughly, hospitals are coping with around six million visits per annum. So that's why I've drawn this like a a, a pyramid. Now, if I was just to sort of sketch for you the regulatory framework um, here, you can s broadly speaking, there is very little regulation of uh, health technology when applied to yourself. So I've added this layer called self-care. There's a lot of us, and so there are some legislations. I mean, there are those relating to the selling of products and all those sorts of things, but broadly speaking, it's quite uh, low. Then we go into this highly regulated um, area, the primary, secondary, and tertiary areas, uh, where manufacturers have to meet all sorts of standards, and we'll talk about some of those later. And then we go into the, again, when we get to quaternary care, where we have highly experimental care and you know very, very competent uh, nurses and, and doctors are in charge, regulation drops again, because obviously you've got very sick people and you're prepared to essentially break the rules a bit for, for, to, to give people a chance of life. Uh, quite rightly. So if you think of this from a um, from an IT perspective, obviously the, the two 
places of market opportunity are self-care, because you've got a large population uh, where you can sell relatively modest priced items, you know, let's say under $100, you know. Uh, so you could sell a lot of those. And that's a big market. And then you've got quaternary care, where you've got a tiny number of uh, customers, but they'll pay a king's ransom for um, some whiz-bang piece of technology. Um, so quaternary care is where all of the uh, press action is, if you like. People get very excited by highly experimental uh, treatments. And during the coronavirus, you could see um, some pretty pretty excited write-ups of some things which are really uh, fairly rarefied and then it's primary secondary and tertiary though where you've got most of the healthcare visits and that's where technology is less developed in my opinion so I'm going to uh, bear that in mind and despite my interest in talking about whiz-bang technology in, in tertiary and quaternary care I'm actually just going to park that a bit and I want to try and focus on the the big parts of the pyramid okay so let's start from the top uh, well this is where we've got you know all sorts of exciting um, uh, developments highly experimental who knows where they'll go um, this is one of my um, recent favorites uh, I'm sure you're aware that um, there's a bit of a problem with antibiotics at the moment and a lot of bugs are generating resistance to antibiotics and it's a bit of a nauseating business developing uh, antibiotics what well, you you just try a lot of stuff on petri dishes and hope it kills stuff uh, and once you've got that past that phase then you're in the process of going to going a bit further so what would be great of course is if you already had a drug which had had some uh, proving with humans and you could check whether it had antibiotic tendencies so uh, this is an example of some artificial intelligence developed at I think it was I'm fairly sure it was MIT um, and they scoured the literature automatically looking for chemical compounds that might act as antibiotics and uh, this is a paper in which they discovered a drug called halicin um, which is which was designed uh, well researched for the treatment of diabetes uh, the drug wasn't continued um, for uh, diabetes because it just didn't do what it was meant to do um, but they uh, MIT used um, some in silico as it's called um, so in, in silicon uh, deep learning approach in 2019 and they discovered that this drug might be a um, broad-spectrum antibiotic. And they discovered that by looking for chemical analogies between that drug and um, other drugs. What's interesting about this and what, what made us interested in this in the scientific literature was that the, um, it wasn't a straight read-across. Um, what's interesting about this drug is it has some unique properties that weren't present in other antibiotics so it's one of the first examples of deep learning uh, not just looking for very simple analogues but looking for actions that follow from certain properties so 
it's not only interesting bit of deep learning, not only interesting bit of medicine, but there's also an interesting bit of deep learning. Right, well, if you're interested in deep learning, uh, uh, then uh, there are some other Gresham lectures that uh, talk about that, and I, I would just like to park that uh, for the time being uh, and move on to um, primary care. So primary care... This is um, general practitioners and nurses dealing with the members of the public. Uh, then the obvious um, innovation in primary care is one that we've all become rather used to at the moment, which is telemedicine, as, it, as it's called. Uh, there are various categorizations of tele, uh, telemedicine, but uh, medics love to categorize everything. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not a great fan of this. Uh, the idea behind telemedicine is actually quite an old one. Um, and... Uh, this is one of my um, favourites. This is um, a speaking tube. So the idea was that in the, in the old days, um, doctors used to be called in the middle of the night to come and visit sick patients, either by the patient themselves or some uh, relative or representative of the patient. And it was a flipping nuisance. I mean, one is uh, the person arriving at your doorstep might be themselves uh, diseased or sick. And... Uh, Secondly, you might be might be able to administer care just by offering comfort, just as today. So, what's the solution? Ah, well, the gutter percher speaking tube is the solution, and the uh, respondent would um, press the doorbell and then speak to you in your bed through the gutter percher speaking tube, and you would then be able to decide whether to put on your nightgown and grab your black bag and go out and treat them, or to presumably tell them to push off. Um, well, actually, the the consultation mechanism doesn't seem to be very well worked out in this advert, which is presumably why gutter percher speaking tubes are not very common uh, today, or possibly because, um, like the rest of us, doctors can't afford to live in large Victorian houses. Uh, they, they only live in, in small semis on the outskirts of uh, towns. Uh, anyway, the gutter purchase, speak, gutter purchase speaking tube, one of the first uh, ideas in telemedicine, and not much has changed really, it's just that's all done electronically. Um, we would now perhaps refer to them as online consultations, and they've become relatively familiar to us during the coronavirus uh, situation because, of course, nobody wants diseased people rocking up in, uh, in, in surgeries. So, well, you can take it a bit further. Um, you can combine online consultations with a bit of secure video, a bit of telephony, so you can get audio, perhaps some symptom checkers, a little bit of AI that does some uh, chat with you and triages you and passes you off to the right consultant, uh, allows you to book some drugs and so on. All of which, if you if you do it right in a systems way, will lead to a pretty um, successful system, and um, I'll just I'll just play you a, a quick clip of a publicity video from one of these systems. Being ill is difficult enough, but accessing medical services can be just as inconvenient. Babylon makes healthcare more accessible and affordable by giving you immediate access to medical services like doctors through your mobile phone, tablet, or web, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Book a video or audio consultation in seconds and have it at a time that suits you. Get the most appropriate advice anytime, day or night, by simply answering questions about your symptoms. 
This is powered by cutting-edge artificial intelligence, which has been accredited by over 100 doctors. If you just need to ask a health-related question, you can text our clinicians, attach photographs if necessary, and get quick answers from medical professionals. Babylon Health Check also puts you in control by providing a picture of your current health. Just answer a few questions and HealthCheck creates your health report and digital twin, allowing you to explore your health from the inside out and get practical insights to make positive lifestyle changes. You can even sync your favorite health apps and wearables. Get quick, clear medical advice if you're in the office, when traveling abroad, or even from the comfort of your own home. Okay, so if that was a system in any other uh, segment of the economy, we would say, cool, and uh, move on. Um, actually, dot, uh, so Babylon Health have uh, a presence in, in the UK, uh, Rwanda, uh, and Canada. Uh, in the UK, doctors did not regard it as cool at all. Um, and um, it all came down to money, I think, I'm sorry to say. So Babylon launched in the UK with a fairly aggressive advertising campaign, which, it, to be fair, was was censored for making uh, claiming things that were a little bit over the top, you know. Um, and, um, you know, how accurate is that symptom checker, really? Val- what did they say? Validated by 100 doctors. Mm, OK. Um, should I trust it, is what the patient wants to know. Uh, the issue is they rocked up in London, uh, which has a, you know quite a lot of big population, and they very quickly gained about 40,000 patients. And um, the more patients you get, the more the state pays you for having them. So obviously they got 40,000 patients and they came from other uh, practices. So um, those other practices were pretty cheesed off and uh, complained about it. Um, I, I'm not sure what I feel about that. I find it hard to get excited about that, really. I mean, it's a, I'm afraid it's a fact of life that if a service is good, then people will migrate to it. Um, I think what people found particularly nice was the convenience. The artificial intelligence aspect was not particularly uh, loved by the patients, but um, Babylon would have to speak for themselves on that. What I would point out is that they are not alone, you know, and... Um, Here's a natty little table showing um, some of the uh, recent innovators in the space using chatbots. Chatbots aren't the important thing. A chatbot is just a system for having uh, interaction with you via text. Um, The important thing is the artificial intelligence on the back of a chatbot that attempts to deal with your symptoms they're not bad I mean uh, I've got several on my mobile phone Um, I mean here's a promo for for another one of them this is one called Your MD Your MD helps you find free safe health information so you can make the best decisions for your health our app is easy to use and gives you the information that you need instantly simply ask our chatbot questions about your health or check the symptoms that are worrying you Relevant information will then be given based on your personal profile and your symptoms. You can also search for information on illnesses and conditions in our Health A to Z. Search One Stop Health for third-party health products and services available in your country. From finding online doctors to local specialists, or even ordering a blood test, our team of doctors review all partners for your peace of mind. 
All of our health information is verified by doctors for your safety. While everything you tell us is stored with the latest security technologies, meaning your data is secure, and more importantly, we don't sell it. Download today and take control of your health with your MD. Okay, well, you can download that one and have a go with it. There's also one called Ada Health, which I quite like. Um, uh, because we're in the United Kingdom, of course, these systems are heavily criticised because we live in a country with health system wars and uh, there can be no impingement on the uh, National Health Service and these things are seen as a nasty private innovation that has to be resisted. Uh, I think... Uh, what do I think? I think if you lived in a country where there wasn't easy access to healthcare, you might regard these as uh, highly desirable. Okay, now, lots of other innovations in primary care, but I, I'm time presses, so I want to sort of crack on and talk a little bit about secondary care. So secondary care is what happens in hospitals. The big innovation in secondary care are digital hospitals, and uh, they're a little bit hard to describe and the idea behind the digital hospital is that everything should be digital and nowadays you might look at me somewhat puzzled and say well well yes of course um let me i'll just i'll play you um a clip from one of the first uh, digital hospitals which was the hudson river hospital in in canada it's quite a small hospital i think it's about six or seven hundred beds uh, british district hospitals will be you know bigger than that um uh, it's a long clip, so I'm just I'm going to have to just pay a little bit of it. But I'll, I'll, let's have a look. Welcome to the new Humber River Hospital, which officially opened its doors on October 18th of this year. I'm Ann Olsher, the Chief Operating Officer of the Intelligent Health Association. Our association is a vendor-neutral, technology-agnostic, global organization dedicated to educating the healthcare community on how technology is improving patient outcomes, patient safety, and operating efficiencies. We are extremely pleased to be here in North America's first fully digital hospital. Known as Lean, Green, and Digital, this 656-bed facility focuses on using the latest technology to ensure treatment is efficient and effective. Additional highlights of this new site include expanded emergency services to accommodate over 130,000 visits per year, complemented by an urgent care center at the Finch Street site that will provide care to another 30,000, modern diagnostics equipment for detailed, accurate patient diagnosis and treatment, and portals of care for easy access and less walking within the building. During today's tour, you will get a glimpse of how technology is transforming the healthcare experience for both healthcare providers as well as patients. We begin in the central nursing station where nurses report when they first arrive on shift. Each floor is equipped with a nursing station midway down the hall and one at the end of the hallway. Upon arrival, each nurse logs into the Meditech EMR system, assigns themselves to their patients, and logs into the ASCOM phone. This device and software combination is a multi-purpose tool to support internal communication and clinical productivity. Okay, so this is 2015. I mean, the ASCOM soft phone, which the, uh, I think it's the nurses fiddling around with there and logging in on, uh, it looks pretty sort of primitive, really, compared to today's technology. But um, it's a very long film. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, what you'll discover is that one of the benefits of 
the soft phones is that you can track everyone. So if someone's critically ill, you can alert the right nurse at the right time. You can also do a lot of work on um, a lot of a lot of optimization on work patterns. Try and make sure that people are spending their time next to patients, which is something that we'll talk about in a moment. So that's one aspect of a digital hospital. Um, another aspect, which perhaps is a little bit easier to implement, is logistics and supply and infection control. I'm sure those of you who are of a certain age have visited um, a modern hospital, and what you'll find is there's a vast number of porters and ancillary staff who are moving patients, food, equipment and drugs around the place, usually, I have to say, pretty slowly. Um, so a modern digital hospital doesn't do that. Um, it uses robots. And I'll play you a clip uh, showing these robots in action from the new Karolinska Hospital in Stockholm in Sweden. Nya Karolinska Solna-projektet kännetecknas av innovativa lösningar för ett modernt och hållbart sjukhus. För att ge patienterna den bästa vården måste så mycket som möjligt runt omkring fungera effektivt. Att hitta smarta logistiklösningar är därför viktigt. Förarlösa robotar, så kallade agv Automated Guided Vehicles, levererar till exempel mat, tvätt och läkemedel på det nybyggda universitetssjukhuset. På så sätt så frigörs... Okay, you got the idea, and you also know that the Swedish for automated guided vehicles is automated guided vehicles. Very useful. Um, the uh, these are quite common now, and a lot of uh, modern hospitals will have a, a robot. The great advantage of a robot, as we've said, is that infection control is uh, easily controllable, and you have. I think it's fatal, and not very quick. They have quantifiable delivery times, so um, that's that's neat. Um, the modern ones can interoperate with humans, uh, which is uh, a help. So, but that said, you usually design a hospital to use AGVs. You know, you usually have a basement, a basement floor that's got all your AGVs in, and the deliveries, and they sh shoot up in little service lifts and deliver things to points. Uh, they don't usually navigate their way through wards. Although, as we shall see later. Uh, the coronavirus has rather accelerated development of um, robot, uh, robot assistance. And there's clearly quite a lot of potential there. Now, what about IT for healthcare, though? I mean, what we've been talking about with the digital hospital so far is IT to sort of make life a bit easier for people in hospitals, possibly more efficient and possibly to save money. You know, the, the usual driver in healthcare for the reasons that we mentioned at the earlier lecture. Horrible health inflation is a great concern. Okay, well, uh, there are quite a few examples here. The one I have picked up on, uh, because it's, it's, it's kind of interesting in a number of ways, is a system called Google, Google Streams. And uh, Google Streams is part of a big effort by Google uh, to get into healthcare. And uh, I'll play you a little clip that explains uh, one of its early deployments. My name is Steve Powis and I'm the Medical Director of the Royal Free London NHS Foundation Trust. We're very excited to be collaborating with DeepMind Health on the Streams application. The first feature we're implementing in Streams is an acute kidney injury management tool. 
Our aim here is to alert the right clinicians to patients who may have developed AKI, which is a sudden deterioration in kidney function. Wherever they are, clinicians can access the alerts, but also other results and the patient's past medical history. This ensures that the specific treatment can be tailored to the patient's overall condition. It also means that cl uh, clinicians can prioritise treatment and respond quickly. Our clinical teams have determined exactly what information should be available in streams, and DeepMind Health then process the data according to their instructions. Streams uses a nationally mandated formula to monitor the kidney function of all patients having blood tests in our hospitals. This is how it all works. If a potential change in kidney function is detected, an alert is generated within seconds on a clinician's mobile device. The clinician can see the patient's age, their details and where they are located within the hospital. They can also view other important clinical information, such as allergies the patient may have, which medical team is looking after them, and their past medical history. Without having to access a desktop computer, the clinician can review all the blood tests. This is a key part of the clinical assessment and includes a review of past blood tests and historical trends. All this information means the clinician can immediately decide whether the patient needs to be seen, how quickly they need to be seen, and what might be causing the deterioration in kidney function. This means patients can be treated more rapidly and more effectively. Finally, we believe that this approach might be important in other major causes of death, such as sepsis, where it's also important to provide immediate alerts to expert clinicians. We very much look forward to working with DeepMind Health to introduce further alert features. DeepMind Health was the, uh, the name for the Google um, AI activity at the time. And this sounds very exciting, doesn't it? And what I'm sure you picked up the critical thing there, which is uh, AKI happens quickly and it might happen too quickly for conventional healthcare settings to spot and sepsis is rather similar I think you know the, the signs are difficult to spot you need a bit of expertise to spot them that expertise isn't always available on site and so it can get missed and people die so let's stop that excellent well you might have noticed there's a white box in the background of this um, this slide and um, that is a deliberate visual metaphor ladies and gentlemen because in the background of all healthcare are is legislation you might have noticed uh, Steve Powis, by the way, on the telly recently. He's the, now the medical director of NHS England. He's frequently on the government briefings. This is the information commissioner, who is a notorious busybody and always complaining about things. He wrote to the, I think it was a he, he wrote to the Royal Free in 2017, accusing them of feeding uh, 1.6 million data points to Google without uh, permission to do so. Uh, I'm sure the Royal Free defended themselves, but anyway, the ICO has sweeping powers and it's usually cheaper and less hassle just to say, OK. Um, and, of course, the effect of that is to stifle medical innovation. The, and you, you might say, well, there are laws in this country, you know, data protection laws and so on. And that, that's perfectly true. Uh, this... But this does lead to me to me one of the sort of persistent problems that um, I feel we should talk about now in this lecture. 
Um, the particularly the, the primary and secondary healthcare systems are, are heavily regulated areas. And um, there's a cycle that is very problematic in healthcare, which is uh, poor design leads to inquiries, leads to regulation, which leads to slowing of the design cycle, which leads to poor design, and so on and so on. It's not the virtuous circle that you find in the rest of the IT industry, where there's a rapid cycling of design with frequent interaction with customers. There's a horrendous gap and slow feedback in normal times in the health service, which leads to a lot of problems. Now, some of these are are very well known. um, And if you're interested in the first one, which is bugs in hospitals, not... not, um, not viruses and and bacteria, but computer bugs, then there's a fascinating lecture given by my uh, predecessor, uh, Martin Thomas and uh, Harold uh, Thimbleby. Harold's an expert on software design. um, About that, all of these issues are common. Let's just pick up some of them. Um, So, bugs. Well, I don't want to spend too long on this because these have been well covered one interesting one that has become a sort of case study for undergraduates in computer science was the Theorac 25 um, system Uh, it's a radiographic system so it would either take images of you or or irradiate you with a dose um, of radiation the idea being that high dose of radiation would kill the the tumour it kills the flesh as well but it differentially kills the tumour and so um, it, it cures you. Uh, the early versions of this system had a mechanical interlock that made it impossible to irradiate people with dangerous amounts of information while you were imaging them. Uh, that interlock was removed and replaced with an electronic interlock which failed and six people died. Um, a really, uh, And it became a legendary case study for, for a whole variety of reasons. If you're interested in the transcript, I've given an example of the language it was written in. And um, you don't need a PhD in computer science to realise it's completely unintelligible language. And it is therefore, in my view, highly unsurprising that somebody who has never been identified, who, who wrote this programme, uh, and uh, apparently had there was no evidence of any qualification in that person or, or following any approved software methodology. It's hardly surprising that, given all of that, that it, the system was a disaster. Amazingly, um, given that, you know, the fact that this radiation software, you might have thought that anyone working in radiation software would be rather wary after that, particularly as one of the outcomes was the development of an international standard, IEC 62304, for medical device software. And it actually defined the software lifecycle and it defined what you should do at various stages in the software lifecycle. Um, multi-data systems who were working in radio treatment planning software, radio treatment planning software tells you where to deliver the beam and how to collimate it and so on. Um, more uh, recently, 1991, um, killed a whole another batch of uh, patients in Panama City. Uh, 
because the data permitted incorrect data entry, which gave wrong calculations, and you know people were just um, irradiated in front of people in hospitals. Absolutely ghastly case. And uh, Harold Thimbleby, who's mentioned here, was involved in another fascinating but alarming case where seventy nurses were either disciplined or prosecuted because allegedly they had failed to keep accurate records of glucose monitoring in the Prince of Wales Hospital in in the United Kingdom. Well, it turned out that they hadn't failed at all and that there was a failure in the database. Uh, The systems they were using were poor. The control on the glucose meters was not very well worked out and it was quite possible for the database to go down and there to be a failure of information to sync between the uh, local devices and the central database. I think I hope I've remembered that correctly, but you do look at the original lecture if you're interested in the details. Uh, What was fascinating to me and alarming was that somebody somewhere, presumably in the hospital or the police, decided that it was more likely that nurses, 70 nurses, 70 nurses were criminals than it was that a computer system failed. Computer systems fail all the time. And nurses, frankly, don't make mistakes very often. So that was a real shocker, you know, to to see that. And also a shocker, I think, not to see more people outraged by by this, presumably because the case got dismissed. Thank God. Okay, so that's one area. And worry about that area leads to the obvious human reaction, which is we must have more regulation and we must have... uh, And the consequence of more regulation, of course, is to slow things down, to make them more expensive and generally make the whole process stodgy. Um, Another issue is that the IT that we have in hospitals isn't amazingly efficient when it comes to people's use and this this has been studied quite a bit i mean i've got a paper here which is an example of one of the studies but there are plenty of them um this is an example where clinicians spent six hours out of an 11 and a half hour day six hours almost half the day on non-clinical it work you know filling in forms billing administrative stuff and so on There are other studies which say nurses can spend as little as a third of their time um, dealing with patients, being in front of patients, despite the fact that there's lots of studies which says nurses watching patients is one of the best things you can do for life expectancy. I don't know if any of you spent any time in hospital. I mean, I have. It's pretty depressing, I must say, to be lying in a bed and watch with essentially all of the highly paid professionals who could make you feel better sitting with their backs turned to you uh, wrestling with bad IT very very alarming well uh, and certain, almost every health service in the world has a procurement disaster um, situation I mean the NHS was notorious I think the um, NHS IT system which was uh, you know developed during the Blair government in this country. Blair government was very keen to modernise the health service, quite rightly, uh, unlocked large amounts of cash to build an integrated record system and improve interoperability between hospitals. 
uh, 12 billion pounds was spent I think in the end it was complete it wasn't complete flop I mean there were some good things came out of it but the spine which is a interoperability network that connects the NHS did come out of it I mean it wasn't worth 12 billion pounds I mean someone wrote to me recently an insider in the health service rather proudly saying well the spine works it's never been hacked and it's very good and it handles 6 billion transactions a year and I thought well it sounds good doesn't it I wonder how big that really is you know and obviously NHS X or NHS Digital as they used to be called I think very proud of this and you know uh, rightly so it's good to have a system that works it's about the same size as PayPal um, uh, now you know you should be proud of PayPal it's a good system why not uh, but it's not amazing on a global scale it's big but it's not vast it's a doable bit of IT the comparison with PayPal is interesting by the way PayPal I think employ about 25,000 people just to run that system uh, I'll I do not know how many people work in NHS Digital, but I'll lay a bet that it is not that many. Okay, and that leads us to the fact that there isn't a national IT system in this country, and this is we're not alone in this, leads us to tremendous problems of interoperability, and this graph is uh, taken from a paper which attempts to show the probability that you would be, your patient records would be able to read be able to be read if you came from a neighbouring region to uh, that point on the graph. So you can see uh, where it's read, then there's a reasonable likelihood that somebody could actually uh, read your records. This is particularly problematic in the UK, where for rare operations you're expected to move around the country and what you usually do if you ever spoken to anyone who's got a rare disease well they'll move around the country lugging with them a great big long set of uh, paper because they need to take every letter that everyone's ever written to them if you have the misfortune ever to go private in this country you will find that not only are your records completely inaccessible to the NHS your consultant who probably earns most of his or her money in the NHS will actually block the um, transfer records uh, they have to be have their permission asked for in order to move it from one uh, system to the other uh, presumably because they don't want you um, they don't want lose, losing your 150 pounds for their 20 minute consultation next time you speak to them so none of these things are very desirable okay um, so the situation I've sort of got myself into is that really software can't really be trusted in life-threatening situations. Procurement is very poor and the IT infrastructure therefore is very poor. So you've got these little outcrops of interesting IT, um, but really anybody who works in IT would, if, if you were offered the contract to build hospital-wide or system-wide systems, if I were you, I would turn it down because there's not much money in it and there are other sectors where you could work and be better appreciated uh, and the regulation and obsession with uh, security I mean this is a peculiar thing with the NHS but the obsession with security is not helpful so what can where are the sweet spots where can we make progress okay well um, simulation is uh, one area that might be attractive and um, I've oh, let me I'll, I'll show you just a short 
clip of what I mean. But obviously, medical education is a, a big area, and computers have had a long, quite distinguished history in uh, medical, edu- what you, medical education. What you obviously need is a sort of robot patient who you can experiment on, and it doesn't matter if you kill them. Well, here's an example. Hi, I'm Hal. I'm the world's most advanced pediatric patient simulator. I help healthcare students and professionals improve their skills in pediatric care. <laughs> oh, I always cringe when I see that clip. I don't like needles being stuck into even dummy boys. Um, quite impressive. And... Obviously, you know, uh, this is the way forward. I mean, there's a big, big area of medical education. Another area I'd like to pull out, and what I like about it is um, it's not a critical area. People uh, aren't immediately at risk if the software fails in a simulator. The same could be said, I think, of patient preferences. Um, It it seems to be that um, a lot of patients are choosing... uh, clinical interventions that might not be right for them and their lifestyle and there's an example here of a benign prostate uh, disease where it seems that a lot of people are choosing to have surgery when uh, but when you give them a lot of briefing about the relative merits of various treatments there's a 40 percent reduction in those who would prefer surgery and obviously that that represents a huge uh, potential saving to a, um, a health service, not only a saving in, in cost, but also a sort of opportunity cost of people not being in hospital and getting disease and having all the problems of being in hospital. So there's obviously uh, more one can do in decision aids. Um, well, there are websites that um, go through this, and here's an example of one. This is one for insulin pumps you know so the idea is uh, your your um, endocrinologist might say well i think have you thought about having an insulin pump and you need to weigh the pros and the cons and in this country in the united kingdom anyway a, a gp's appointment a physician's appointment is, is 10 minutes so i don't think really 10 minutes can possibly be long enough to to weigh the options with you so could some of that be done without the specialist in the room so I think what would happen in the future is somebody says, well, I think you need an insulin pump. Why don't you uh, download this app um, and uh, go away and think about it? And you would play around with this app. And if you, if you like the idea, you'll go down one route. And if you go down another route, and one of those routes might be, well, you'll go back to the clinician and say, I'm puzzled. But it will, you can be confident that people have got... Uh, the proper briefing and I'm sure people watching this have this happen all the time I mean we we have uh, where I work we have to do a mandatory uh, equality diversity training uh, it's not a problem but it's delivered by a computer system because it, it's better to get frequent uh, training than it is to have infrequent but higher quality training so uh, perfect and this is to take us back to the World Health Organization, this is exactly what the World Health Organization um, pointed out, which is that uh, you know the, the innovations that you might expect in digital health are not quite where you would expect them to be. You might you might be expecting you know robot surgeons and all that sort of stuff, 
actually they have some very simple checkpoints. So one is um, you should be able to notify a birth via a mobile device or notify a death. You should be able to monitor stock uh, and levels of PPE. You should be able to help management. You should client to provide a telemedicine provider to provide a telemedicine. That's when you can call a specialist. You know, so you're out in the field and you've got somebody with some rare disease. You should be able to press a button and get in contact with a specialist in a particular field, and they will be able to give you uh, what you need: targeted communication and tracking of patients and health status and services, decision support, uh, provision of training and educational content to health workers. So those are, they're not the sort of glamorous uh, parts of NHS. In fact, those of you who don't work in the health service might think, well, those are pretty much the sort of things that we would would expect to have in a modern organisation. Right, this is my point. The innovations that the World Health Organisation is urging health services to, to make, they are not robot doctors and fancy diagnosis systems at all. The innovations that they're asking us to make aren't innovations at all for the rest of the planet. They are what you would expect to have in a modern organisation. So that is a fairly sort of dramatic um, observation, I think, because by, by extension and by by sort of following on from that, it's evident that most health services around the world are not modern organisations. They do not have what I would call a systems design attitude. They are a piecemeal of systems hacked together in order to cope with one crisis after another. Uh, When I previewed this conclusion with somebody who's an expert in the health service, I foolishly said that the health services weren't good at planning and he got very hot under the collar about that and said, no, they are good at planning. And I realised I confused what I meant. They're very good at operational planning. You know, um, we've got a crisis, what are we going to do? What I'm talking about here is design. Health systems need to be designed and if they're designed, then IT professionals and developers can work within them to deliver the outcomes. If they're not designed, who knows? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, well, that would have been the end of my uh, lecture. I prepared this lecture pre-COVID. But I can feel you sort of longing to um, for me to say something about COVID. Um, so now with added COVID. Um, so um, now... Uh, it's difficult to get a handle on what's going on in uh, COVID because all the rules are off and the traditional sort of highly regulated, slow behaviour of health services has all stopped. And uh, there's a lot of media interest in all of these things. I should possibly name check uh, Ron John Ron John Nag, um, who gave a very good uh, IET seminar on AI and engineering for healthcare on the 6th of March. And... Um, some of these observations come from him. Uh, so, this is a picture of the um, 
Nightingale Hospital, which was an emergency hospital produced in the United Kingdom to cope with the COVID uh, crisis. It was produced in the Excel Exhibition Centre. It was done remarkably short order, and it was just a pleasure to... If you, if you like engineering and you like systems, it was just a delight to watch it being built. Um, it was really, really uh, ever so impressive. Um, and, you know, sort of certain pride swelled within one's breast when you watched it go up. People, magnificent effort by a number of people to put it up. What is surprising, however, um, to me, is that the, well, the, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom employs 1.4 million people. It is the is it the fifth largest employer on the planet. It is a vast organisation. And yet, to build this hospital, uh, had to have very substantial input from a British army, which contains only 70,000 people. Uh, if you want to know what that looks like, these two photographs tell you what it's looked like. So they're, they're roughly in the ratio of the size of the NHS to the, um, the army. And um, insiders on this project say what a delight it was to work with the army because they got things done. If you like systems, and I do like systems, then you can download the manual for building an NHS um, hospital. Uh, this comes from the, uh, the architect's of um, yeah, the architects of a project, uh, BDP architects, and um, in the centre of this slide, I'm not sure if you can see it, but to zoom in, is a little diagram which shows you uh, patient flows. Oh, it's all very comforting, very nice. So what's been excellent, I think, out of the crisis, if you can say anything is excellent, is we can see the beginning of what I would call systems thinking, thinking about the health service as a system for patients, a machine, and designing the machine to fit. As it happened, these hospitals weren't, uh, weren't required, but I think there's, so there's an issue here, which I, I'm using this physical example to bring out, which is the system could do with some improvements. Now, what about, what about the pandemic and um, what's the role of IT? You know, has IT done anything? Um, seems to have taken rather a back seat, doesn't it? Um, well, the fact we're all working from home um, and society hasn't fallen over, the networks haven't fallen over, the mobile phone system has still worked, the power system still works, those are all triumphs of IT. And of course, like all great IT, it's all happened silently and nobody's really noticed because nothing's fallen over. Uh, that's the consequence of systems design. You know, the people thought about capacity beforehand and they were able to configure uh, around. There, there aren't any IT versions of the Nightingale Hospital. Right? The capacity was there in advance. It had been designed into the system. Right, but what, into, what about the pandemic itself? Well, um, I suppose the first interesting observation is that... Uh, IT actually predicted the pandemic before anyone else. Um, so this is a paper by uh, uh, Blue Dot AI, who are a Canadian company. Uh, during the SARS and Zika crisis, uh, the founder of Blue Dot became concerned that uh, we weren't very good at tracking and predicting the outbreaks of new disease. So he built a company 
uh, well, social enterprise actually, uh, which uses some AI and natural language to look for, through medical reports. It also looks at geographic factors, flight data and so on, and attempts to predict not only when something will start, but how it will spread. And their claim, you can look at it on their website, is that uh, Blue Dot published the first paper on uh, COVID and they, further they claim that they were able to predict the spread of the disease uh, very effectively. Um, I guess in retrospect it was a pity that no one knew about this but um, you know that, that what from my point of view there's obviously some potential in that sort of uh, technology disastrous event uh, prediction has quite a good history in IT you know looking for the 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 pre-shocks, if you like, for of a, some sort of system earthquake is something that exists in a number of sectors. Um, I worked on a system in um, leak detection, for example, that uh, looks for tiny, tiny little signs that a big catastrophic leak is about to happen. So there's one area. The other area is um, early warning signs of the disease itself. So we've all discovered that it is can be very tricky for people to know particularly young people to know whether they've got the disease and they need to know whether they've got disease because they might pass it on to people like me uh, where it will be very serious so i'm very keen on this um, a couple of approaches here one is the aura ring um o-u-r-a uh, which is a wearable which measures your heartbeat and the west virginia university rockefeller neuroscience institute uh, have been um, involved in that project and the idea there is that you would give your this is being tried on medics so they're given what they call digital PPE and this photograph is them receiving their digital PPE which is rings and apps and various other things that monitor their heartbeat and it's known that your resting heartbeat and a few other things that you can measure is an indicator of whether you have uh, inflammation and possibly the disease so generally it will give you one to two days after you caught the disease notification that you've got it so if that works that could be um you know quite quite impressive and useful thing to do um uh, another product which is working at the moment is um uh, gt cardio they, they're a wearables company i know they've been working with uh novolog which is an israeli company that's they monitor pulse and pulse oximetry and respiration temperature and so on and able to spot whether you can you've got a disease and i suppose it's fair to say that all of these are built upon some work by Shao Li and michael snyder at stanford um and they were able to show some time ago a few years ago that you were able to detect lyme disease using a combination of wearables so um they also discovered lots of interesting, other interesting things using wearables. I remember they they uh, measured your radiation dose doing various things, you know, like travelling in aircraft and various things. It was an interesting, interesting paper. So uh, they've partnered up with Fitbit and uh, Scripps uh, Research, uh, trying to spot, do early tracking of COVID. Uh, obviously quite a slow project to get off the ground I would have thought because you got to go through a whole lot of clinical trials the usual problem being that if you if you falsely notify people that they've got a disease and they have not bad things can happen and if you miss a disease very bad things can happen so uh, very early stages but 
I do like this idea of very intimate uh, detail monitoring of what are quite easy um, vital sites and using that for prediction. It's obviously very, very attractive. However, the thing that's, of course, in the news at the moment and the thing that everybody wants to talk about is contact tracing. So the idea behind contact tracing is that uh, if I get the disease, is there a way that I could notify everyone I've been in contact that they too might have the disease and would they kindly stay at home? So if you've read the, the press, the press has you know, uh, been very keen to sort of simplify things. Um, and why not? It's quite a complex process, um, contact tracing. Perhaps I would sort of think of things running on a continuum. So on the, um, the right-hand side, uh, we have countries like South Korea. And what South Korea have done is contact tracing using mobile telephony, purchase cards, and it doesn't require an app at all. What it requires is a, is a spy service. And um, uh, if, you are, if you're not queasy about such things, then you just allow your government to track you and uh, they can do the contact tracing for you. That's a highly centralised system, not popular in any of the sort of um, more antique democracies, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, then over on the left-hand side, we've got the sort of decentralised approach. And the decentralised approach is uh, my app comes into contact with your app through Bluetooth, uh, they exchange some sort of cryptographic key which will later allow an infected person to contact me directly and say, you might be infected. Um, so the, the cryptography of that was looked at um, some time ago. I remember there was a paper by John Crowcroft, I think, on um, distributed crypto that allows you to do this um, quite neatly. And this is the idea that uh, Google and Apple are rather keen on because they don't like the idea of governments looking at your your data. Uh, very strange to hear that from Google. I mean, Google haven't had any queasiness about looking at your data themselves. But anyway, um, I see where they're coming from. Not all governments are benign. Um, so they haven't built an app, by the way, Google and Apple. What they've built is a is a, what's called an API or an interface to the operating system. It's a little bit tricky because, uh, at least in Apple's iPhone, the Bluetooth isn't on all the time. It's only on if the app is on. This is one of the rows that's happening with the French government and Apple at the moment. French government's probably somewhere in the middle on this spectrum. Um, French government... Uh, is operating on some fairly severe legal constraints and not being able to track people's phones um, so without their permission. So they would like very much Apple to keep the Bluetooth on and Apple think, no, we don't want to, thank you very much. Um, and then Britain is going for a more centralised uh, system where there's a centralised uh, database that uh, will keep a record of everyone. Now obviously the centralised system is very attractive to sort of, what's the word, um, people who want to know what's going on. Um, if, you, if you have a health service that needs to plan, then a centralised system is very attractive because it tells you where you've got um, the disease and it allows you to take action. You 
know, so I, I mean, I live in Norwich, which had a very low um, incidence of disease and lowest in the in the UK, in fact. Um, so maybe you don't need to put a ring of steel around Norwich. We can go about our daily business, whereas uh, the citizens of London, you know, all have to be constrained within the M25 or something. Uh, low, so that's a operational issue. The issue on centralised versus decentralised is probably twofold. Um, one is, do you trust your own government? Um, the other, I think, is how will the data? How long will it data be destroyed? I should say, one of the issues is that um, not everyone has a smartphone. So, when you account for the uptake of smartphones, which is high but not enormous, you need very high adoption of this in order to be confident that this is going to have big, dramatic effects on your. Uh, on the spread of a virus and people are talking about 80% adoption that's based on a study on uh, Oxford study on um, assuming I think 56% people had mobile phones and um, you've also got this problem that you're almost guaranteed to falsely um, alert people I don't think you can do much about that you know so if my next door neighbour has um, the disease, well, I can see their Bluetooth through my walls, so, you know, I'm going to get notified and there's not much I can do about that. Um, now, what to do about um, adoption? Because this 80% adoption is a problem. Now, I don't know if you know uh, the great Fowler quote on split infinitives, but um, it's sort of, it's the same issue with adoption, I think, uh, and privacy. So, there are there are those people who sort of neither know nor care about the difference between distributed and central uh, databases, and th they're fine. You know, they're going to adopt the app, right? We don't have to worry about that. And there, there are people who know what the issues are between central and distributed databases, but don't care. I think I would fall into that category, and we're going to adopt the app. You don't have to worry about me. The people you have to worry about are the people who either know and care, right, there's quite a few of them, and then even more worrying, the people who don't know and care. right? So they're a really worrying group, aren't they? The people who don't understand the issues, but they care. And we see a lot of them in the COVID crisis, people who clearly don't know what they're talking about, but seem to worry about it very much. Um, now, why would we worry? Because irrespective of the technical merits of the system, what really matters about is adoption. If you can't get this adoption up, one should have anxiety. So I would have hoped that that would have been at the front of the designers, all, all designers' minds. Well, it's an experiment waiting to happen. I mean, different countries have taken different approaches and we'll have to see um, how, it, how it goes. Um, I, fingers crossed, I think, was what we have to say on the app. Now... I've referred to the NHS um, a bit during this lecture, and that's not because I'm particularly interested in the, the British or English experience. Um, it's just because big national healthcare systems tend to generate lots of useful statistics. Um, a couple of issues about the NHS, which I think are a little bit problematic. The first one, which I haven't talked about already very much, is there there is a 
obsession in the NHS with privacy and security. And this is entirely understandable. I mean, nobody would like their medical records to be leaked. So there's an assumption here that it's the function of IT to prevent that. Now, as soon as you take that view, of course, you'll end up, in, you'll end up building systems that can't be used by anyone. And if you've ever tried to download the NHS app, um, well, it's horrible. I mean, it's one of the most horrendous experiences of your life. I'm a professor of computer science, and it took me three days to get it downloaded and used. There's a whole series of enrolments that you have to go through. And once you've gone through those enrolments, you've given away so much personal information, you really, you, 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 the stakes are very high on security. They better not give your data away, because you've given away a lot of information. Um, so that, this is typical uh, bad thinking, I think. I mean, I would much prefer a sort of thinking which says, well, if you're going to use the NHS, then you're obviously prepared to give up some of your privacy because you're prepared to share some of your medical data to help others. That's the point of a big system like that. If you don't want to give up your data, then you should go to the private sector, right? which is more expensive but protects you. So... I would prefer a more nuanced version which would say, well, wouldn't it be easier to legislate that people's medical details should be private? Because if you did that, then you could relax the obsession with uh, privacy and security. I've already said that you know there are problems with infrastructure, supply chains, and so on. I think my big point is that it would be very helpful if society could design the NHS as a system and by that I mean we could agree on some of the priorities and how they should be handled so a good example would be privacy to what extent should the NHS be private and that that's a deep question it needs some thinking about but if you can get some long-term agreement on these things then you can build Systems and people would want to build systems when you've got a stable idea of what the system is designed to provide. So, uh, well, those things aren't happening at the moment. So, uh, in the meantime, uh, this lecture goes out on a Thursday evening, and in uh, the United Kingdom, on the Thursday evening, we uh, stop having our dinner and we go outdoors and we clap for our carers. So, um, like me, you can clap for your carers. I should say, when I'm clapping for them, I'm clapping for the very brave individuals and heroic individuals who are working not only in the NHS, but all of our services. Uh, I'm not clapping for the IT infrastructure, that's for, that's for sure. Okay, so in this lecture, we have talked a little bit about one aspect of the digital state, which is healthcare. Uh, in this series, we've talked about uh, identity, social media, communications, universities, crime and punishment, money and health. I would say a recurring theme in these lectures, much to my surprise when I started writing these, was the necessity of systems thinking. And systems thinking means thinking about your delivery of a public service and what you would wish to happen from that delivery and sticking with it. Um, there's perfectly, it's perfectly possible to have political debate and controversy within an agreed uh, framework. The current, I mean, we certainly saw with the UK legal system, uh, US legal system, I would say the same thing, and certainly the 
our Western uh, health systems in most countries are very problematic for IT consultants and professionals because they're lacking in uh, systems design. And my plea, my plea is if you are a citizen of one of these governments, if you could gently uh, re-emphasize this to your democratically elected representatives, then we would all be uh, very much uh, better off. Thank you.